The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and my guests, Demetrius Hunter, Dr. Monique Gary, and Cameron Smith. As we continue the series, Harvesting Health Equity, Exploring Foodways, Black Farming, and the Transformative Power of Food as Medicine. Let's get back into the conversation. My work with Cameron and Durham is what birthed in me the language to understand and name community-informed solutions. You'll see that in Naisha Frey tagline, community-informed solutions to health Mm -hmm. equity problems, right? And me and Cameron's conversations also led me to be able to name and understand in action, right, what community-rooted work was. And that's really what she talked about, was that her work came from the community, is rooted in the community, is for, by, and about the community. And I know just from my conversations with each of you, Monique and Demetrius, that that's very similar to what you do as well. But she used a key term that I was going to get into and she beat me to it. And that is food apartheid. Cameron, can you tell our audience, what is food apartheid? And what is the role of food apartheid in shaping minority health disparities? And after she finishes, if anybody else wants to add, please do. Yeah, so we hear a lot of people coin the phrase food deserts, and I think food deserts has been coined by a lot of people, predominant culture people, who basically themselves have not oftentimes been directly impacted, specifically in systems that have kind of created um, this maelstrom. But food apartheid is, and what I and what I and what I counter with it when somebody brings up the food desert, I said desert is a naturally occurring environment mm. in an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. What we have in terms of that's not a natural consequence of how black and brown communities have created, have have evolved and have adapted. That was a systemic intervention that harmed and was intentionally taken there to extract Mm -hmm. out of the black and brown communities. The reason why you have fry bread in indigenous communities is because they extracted the source of water Mm -hmm. from them. The reason why, you know, we have corner stores and or and, and the McDonald's that, that Monique mm-hmm. was talking about is because we extracted the availability of fresh and local places for us to be able to get lean and good meats from, to be able to get fresh and local produce from, to get fresh dairy products, things of that nature. And also the affordability aspect, because yeah. economic mobility right now is at an all-time low. I mean, we had more economic mobility in the Black and Brown community during Jim Crow and Reconstruction than we do right now. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the cost of living, for what our AMIs within our own communities, within our social What is an AMI now? You you dropping them acronyms, babe. <laughs> <laughs> What's the AMI? Average, average median income. There you go. Uh, and so, you know, when you look at that, like in Durham, it's just, it's, it's skyrocketed. Where no one, you couldn't, even, in my neighborhood, so to speak, in, in all of the triangle, my mm-hmm. neighborhood was the one place where they told you never, ever, ever to go. And right now, at this point, you people are moving in in droves. You couldn't pay people mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago to throw a rock over in my community. Mm-hmm. And now they're moving in, which is making the average median income or the cost of living of what it takes to live in Northeast Central Durham or East Durham is skyrocketing. 
Mm-hmm. So you have people that are moving in there with 80 and 90, uh, 80, 90, a hundred thousand dollar, you know, incomes and people in my community or that, you know, or the, that are part of CIP 25,000. And so what we're accustomed to is like corner stores. Mm-hmm. We're accustomed, we're accustomed to go into a corner store. We're accustomed, you know, to maybe a save a lot or something like that, which is not my idea of a fresh, it, it, you know, it's a healthy grocery store type of mm-hmm. construct. And so, you know, but now we're kind of struggling with that whole process because this was intentionally placed within our communities to not give us what we needed to actually thrive healthily. Mm-hmm. And so now we're at a, at a, at a precipice because you have all these people of privilege moving in like, oh, we want our whole foods. Oh, we want this. And it's kind of like a struggle kind of thing because mm-hmm. you go from extreme lack to extreme plenty, but extreme plenty for whom? Mm-hmm. So that's the heart, and which sets up a whole nother system of apartheid, simply because who would have access to, to be able to afford something like that and who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sort of the story what happened in Southwest Central Durham with, you know, the Durham Co-op, the same thing, where people, the people in the community couldn't afford the store, even though it was supposed to be there for everybody in the community. And ultimately, it helped continue to gentrify Southwest Central Durham. Yeah. So that that's, you know, it's a systemic, in my opinion intentional force that was created to extract and to and to and to cripple black and brown communities in terms of of because we know this that us claiming our health is a political act mm. anytime we we move to become healthier mm-hmm. to become more vibrant and taking care of our weight of our sugar levels our little levels in terms of our heart you know trying to, to mitigate heart disease even trying to mitigate overall causes of chronic illnesses overall causes of breast cancer, other can I'm a breast cancer survivor. And all of these things are coming at us. All of these systemic forces mm-hmm. are set up to basically, in my opinion, we're having the outcomes that we should be having. Mm. Um, and I, I actually think they could be way worse. <laughs> mm. And it's just a miracle that, mm-hmm. that we are still um, able to survive and thrive in a lot of situations the way that we are today as a people. Health outcomes by design. Wow. Yep. For uh, for us, for Black, Indigenous, for Latinx folks, you know, just, yeah, that's by design. That's what I believe. Mm. How do you all rate, uh, Demetrius and, Mo- and Monique, how do you all relate to this term and this idea of food apartheid and its connection to shaping minority health disparities? It's real. And that it's not one dimensional, you know, it's, it's not just the, the structural absence of, of food of fresh food, but I think it also speaks to, um, there's a term we use in oncology called financial toxicity, mm-hmm. right? And that is a structural barrier that help that, that prevents folks from accessing the food that is even in their communities. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm practiced out in rural Pennsylvania farms all over the place, but that doesn't mean folks can afford to eat off of them. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we're trying to partner with the farmers markets to get vouchers so people can afford the food at these farmers markets because it's expensive and their cancer care is, is taking up so much of their budget that they end up at food pantries and they end up at the Y and they end up getting, you know, whatever. I had a, a lady, she was, I, I think she's about 80 years old. And mm-hmm. I always go through my, my checklist of things, you know, once we start talking about cancer and on my way out the door, I say, okay, you know, 
uh, is there anything else? You know, how, how are we doing? How are you feeling about things? And she said, oh, I'm feeling all right. You know, and she understood she had early stage breast cancer. And I said, okay. And I said, you know, let's talk a little bit about diet and, and, you know, tell me, tell me what your diet is like. And she said, well, you know, food is really expensive. And, you know, she said, I lost some weight. And her daughter said, tell her why mom. And she says, because why well, I eat at the I go to the Y and sometimes I get enough food for, for lunch and stretch it to dinner. And, you mm -hmm. know, I eat what's in the cabinet and it might be, you know, a can of soup or something. And, you know, she, she's losing weight because she can't afford food. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I think that, you know, while it's slightly tangential to the subject of food apartheid, it's, it's still really real because there's a lot of structural barriers in place and it's compounded when you talk about folks from our, our communities who, you know, don't have the access by design. And it makes things like these focuses on, on wellness seem like it's for others and not for us, mm. you know, because there's this financial barrier and there's this access barrier that exists that I, I see people assume like, oh, that, that wellness, you know, whatever is, is not for me. And, mm -hmm. and, and I, I think that democratizing wellness and food sovereignty is something that's so important to Cameron's point, because we're in the era of, of precision oncology. We can design cancer drugs down to the mm -hmm. molecule even. And, and why can't we do the same for our wellness? I kind of coined this term pre precision wellness. Right. Mm. I feel like there's an opportunity for us to really define what that looks like for us and for our communities and not just for some communities who can afford the, the very precise foods that are medicine. So so that's that's my hot take. And I love that, Monique, because what you did there was you made a point, I think, about how we look at wellness. It is not democratized. And we don't just assume that it's not for us. We've been told in so many ways that it's not for us. And I think that even goes for certain types of health foods, right? Is that we have translated it being too expensive, it being on the other side of town, it being unaccessible for a number of reasons, that that must not be Black. That must not be what it is to be Black. Right. And it's almost like these structures and these policies are forcing us to define even in our cultural and social and our in our communities what blackness is. It kind of goes back to what you mean you don't like cornbread? What you mean you don't like collard greens? Well, those are the things that, you know, you might find it. You're more likely to find it save a lot, including with the chitlins. But you're not necessarily going to find couscous or quinoa or, you know, all these other things. And if they are there, they're off in a certain section. They're not mixed in with the rices and the grains. If they are there, they're a lot more expensive than that white rice. The brown rice is definitely more expensive, you know, those types of things. And so, yes, those signals come to us as a group and lead us to a, a way of thinking that says, well, this is what is for Black people. And that's what's for those other people. And because we are angry, about the apartheid, we poo-poo the good stuff, the quote unquote, you know, like what is actually supposed to be healthy for us. And we say, well, that's what those white folks eat. That's what those, you know, other folks eat. We don't eat that, you know, because we're always trying to, I feel like protect ourselves and reclaim ourselves and 
trying not to shame ourselves in regard to what it is that we do have access to, what it is that we can cook, what it is that we can eat. And I just find that really interesting that, you know, we do need to democratize wellness. We do need to have precision wellness. This is a very interesting conversation. Demetrius, how does food apartheid show up in your work and what, you know, the way that you move in the community? I mean, you have two stores, one in I guess what some people would call downtown Raleigh and a portion of the black community, a, a strong black community over there. And then also in Norlina out in the more rural part of North Carolina in Warren County. How do you see food apartheid playing out in these totally different places? I mean, R Raleigh is considered urban, right? And then of course, Norlina is like this rural community. And when I moved to Norlina with 19,000 people here and mm. one grocery store, I knew I was in a place that would be considered food apartheid. And all my life I was in Southeast Raleigh. So mm -hmm. I knew what it looked like. And infrastructure is everything mentally and physically trying to get to healthy foods in these places that are um, predominantly historically black. It's a very hard challenge. What we used to do, me and my dad, we would go to neighborhoods, communities, and people would buy healthy foods. Like literally, they would take the truck and buy everything off the truck if we showed up. My dad had a loan system. So if they didn't have the, have the money, he would loan it to them until the end of the month. And I tell you, people would eat so good, but they would, you know, have the options there. You know, I can't currently do that with this new generation of people, you know, loaning out food. is just a little bit difficult than back in the days when people took their word and, you know, if they gave you their word, they would stick to it. But now uh, regionally in this rural location, I'm finding there's a lot of people, you know, that own farms. They're becoming more food sovereign. People mm -hmm. want to move back out into the country mm -hmm. so they can le learn and understand how to eat healthier and not have to worry about the grocery stores. Mm -hmm. But on the other side to that is depending, uh, I, it's, you know, become a, a thing where I'm seeing the dependency and I'm having a hard time with the dependency and people that may have already not been able to afford food mm. versus people that become dependent. And if it was due to, you know, mentally just continuously just receiving free food mm. and mentally saying, Oh, I, I know that food truck is coming at the end of the month. So I'm not going to grow food. I'm not going to work for food. I'm going to wait for this food to come. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in those food, the food that comes, a majority of it is unhe unhealthy mm. and it's mostly canned sodium or processed foods. So having that mentality or that mindset to say, hey, I'm waiting on the truck is a big concern for me. Mm. And I'm hoping that, you know, people are picking up, learning on how to farm in urban and rural communities so that we can become food sovereign and we can start understanding our diet and mm. knowing what our 
what our food looks like when it's grown right out the ground and appreciate those who do farm more mm-hmm. so that, you know, they'll take up, take up eating more healthy. I know I'm all over the place cause I'm all over the place physically. No, you're great. But, you're great. Yeah. But, but that's what I'm on though. You, you are, I, I'm, I'm, I'm over here type, typing in the chat. I'm like, this is so beautiful. And it is a different era, you know, where you can't probably do those things, but it, it's just the, the model that you said and the very fact that people are now really trying to emulate it and moving out of cities and trying to find their own piece of land and trying to figure this thing out. Like we true to this, we ain't new to this, you know? <laughs> right. And, and, and just hearing the stories of, of your father and of the food truck and of, of, you know, helping our communities all along. It's just that mm-hmm. that's a story that needs to be told. It's not, we just yeah. discovered this, right? Like this mm-hmm. is what we've been to each yes. other and to our community. And so this is, um, this is a good thing. You, you, you right on. Right. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think along those lines, the next question I want to ask is what power do everyday people have in shaping their food environment? So I'm going to just kind of piggyback off of also the last question. And so Mm -hmm. I think part of the thing with everyday people and I, and, you know, I'm going to whittle it down to the people that I know, which are black people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, because I think we have to be very clear, you know, because, you know, race is the single largest determinant of your outcomes, mm. you know, it, it, race and your zip code. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. and then your gender. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and so when you're looking at all of these, like what Demetrius was just saying, you know, why is it there, there's a level that we have to also bring in for healing? Mm. Because why is it that two generations ago or a generation ago that we could lean on the word of people? Mm. And part of it is, is the uprooting of who we are and our collective identity as people that are descended from African people and have a village or a collective identity that we take care of one another. Mm-hmm. And so when that's been kind of chipped away over and over and over again by white supremacy, by by mental health issues, by, you know, capitalism, capitalism planta- plantation capitalism, extraction different areas of apartheid and all these systems that we have, and we have to make a way out of no way. It just does, it chips away at your humanity after a while. And, and then how do we have this conversation? Because this is something that I know that like, you know, that my daughter owns a business and she's always kind of having to kind of banter as a, as a chef, you know, because the food systems is the food system is at a highly oppressive system. If people don't understand where you get your food from and, and, and the relationship of stolen land, stolen people and stolen labor is so deeply embedded where we have normalized the extraction and the, and the oppression of everyone and how we actually make money and we get what we need. Mm-hmm. And it's almost to the point where if someone comes with a idea or a way of being that humanizes mm. people you're considered incompetent and weak. Mm. So th- we have we have a huge issue in this nation and we can't go back it, it, like we want to ignore where we got our starting and our founding from. And, you know, farmers, housing is a human right. Water is access to clean, healthy water is a human right. Access to clean, nourishing food is a human right. But because we live in a capitalist system, 
how do we create so that Demetrius mm -hmm. and his family aren't having to lose everything they have to supply their community with health mm. food? Mm. So how do we do that? And how do we have these conversations? How do we equip Monique to be able to be the excellent black female cancer expert that she is mm -hmm. to the point where she can use her skill and her craft with any women who never would be able to afford, but at the same time, making sure that Monique has every single thing that she needs economically in terms of systems, everything that Monique needs to take care of herself and her family. Mm. We have to have these types of conversations about what the, because the cost is killing us. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say plantation capitalism, mm -hmm. because I know there's, you know, capitalism is, is a huge issue uh, conversation amongst black folks, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, and we, it goes across the board, but I think we really have to have come to Jesus meetings about some of these issues because it's always extract, 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 extract. And so, yes, I agree that people need access to healthy food. But how do we do so in a way that's not not causing harm and the orientation that community has with the healing power of food when we have been so traumatized over and over and over again mm -hmm. by the system that we were shuttled all the way from our homeland all the way across, you know, to do the bidding of, mm -hmm. or to build wealth on behalf of someone else. Mm -hmm. um, those are the types of things I think we, we, we're going to start to have to have some real clear conversations of what does it look like to have a system that we flip on its back, flip the script. And so it's not so exhaustive and, and extractive um, from our own people or mm -hmm. from anybody else. Because the last thing I'm not in this work to do to white and other pe white people and other people, what they did to me. And let's mm. be clear Let, that, that that's the other thing I am not, that's not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to extract my own humanity. Mm. Ooh, we, you preaching. And not even to go as, as 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 deep as you've gone, just in the two years, well, I guess the one year, I've had this farm for three years and I'm doing it from my own pocket to be able yep. to provide programming, to be able to cultivate this land and to be able to have programs that teach folks food as medicine. Mm -hmm. And you know, the number one question people keep asking, well, how is this a sustainable business model? And I said, well, I can't mm -hmm. be good conscience, charge people money to come out here and learn these concepts that they should be learning to, to live a better and healthier life, especially when they're facing a cancer diagnosis and all the other bills and chronic issues that they're having. I said, so you want to talk about what's sustainable, what you bring to the table, mm. you, you know, and it, it's such a hard conversation because people keep trying to infuse these principles of, of, mm -hmm. of capitalism and oppression and a lot of other things on the, the good work that needs to be done in this space. Mm -hmm. but, but Cameron, you're right that like, you know, people got to eat, right? And, and the mortgage got to get paid and the tractor need to get fixed again. And all these, yes. all these things that um, are secondary to, but, but equally as important as the work that we're trying to do. So some conversations and some reckonings certainly do need to, to be had and, and some community partnerships that are truly beneficial, not just in, in money, but also in skills and in bartering and in, in, in things mm -hmm. that help to create a sustainable ecosystem for this work. Um, I, I, I'd love to see more of that type of conversation happen too. Yes. And I think, you know, that whole conversation about how this is a sustainable business model, you know, uh, it makes me so upset. It's like, 
you know this is the right thing to do. You know this is what needs to be done. You know this is healing. But you keep insisting to put this circle, trying to force this circle into a square. And that's where all of the, like you said, plantation capitalism comes in. That's where all the health outcomes by design comes in. That's where, you know, the the lack of democratizing, no democracy and wellness, you know, there's none of that because you're still trying to put a price on what's supposed to be a human right. But I think Demetrius, and I hope that you speak to this, is making a great point as well. Cameron is making an awesome point. Farmers still deserve to get paid, right? And 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 still deserve to have a, a quality of life that allows them to thrive in this work and not be one of the leading populations who are committing suicide, right? That's something that, you know, we don't talk about a lot is that a lot of farmers are so financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically worn out trying to make a living that the numbers of suicide amongst farmers is rising Hmm. dramatically. I would, um, you know, all of this is so important, this information healing black farmers, the community, people who cannot afford to have a decent meal or can't find a decent meal within a mile, you know, two or three mile radius. All of this is something that I need to hear. You know, there should be a headquarters of the reckoning and, and the mental breakdown of all of these situations because I I don't see us healing if we're not talking about the situation and Mm -hmm. uh, logistically figuring out how we can make a difference in our community and bringing people with the skill sets and the mindsets to recover. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the major pieces that we lack in this healing process we continue to, you know, have grant funding for infrastructure, grant funding for, you know, all types of things, but healing and these conversations, I don't see a lot of investment in that and how finding a pathway of how we get out of this, this, these social barriers, mm-hmm. these uh, injustices that have been put on us since enslavement. We move forward as a community. Some of us have made it to the other side, if you want to say, but it's a lot of people that are suffering. And I think like these conversations with some amazing people on this line is so important to continue on bringing in community, you know, having round tables. Uh, actually coming out to some of the communities, coming out to the store location and and sharing, you know, I think that's very, very important to the next stage and the next phase of, um, of this. I appreciate you sharing that, Demetrius, because I can tell that you're touched, right? Yeah. This is real life, people. This is real life. One of the things that I know Cameron has probably heard me say too many times, 
and my audience has heard me say it more is that I am what I do. And the people that I bring on my show, they are what they do. This is not just for, you know, Hollywood. This isn't made up. We're not making, we wish we, we would never make this up, right? We are fighting and working and toiling in spite of so many things. Thank you for listening to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and my guests, Demetrius Hunter, Dr. Monique Gary, and Cameron Smith. Tune in next week as our series, Harvesting Health Equity, exploring foodways, Black farming, and the transformative power of food as medicine continues.